Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast where we talk about how our institutions are failing us and how to fix them. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. Normally, we would have James Wallner of the R Street Institute with us, but he is out today. And I'm Lee Drutman, senior fellow at New America. So today we're really fortunate to have a guest with us, Professor Kenesha Grant, who's a, an assistant professor at Howard University and the author of a new uh, hot off the presses book, The Great Migration and the Democratic Party, Black Voters and the Realignment of American Politics in the 20th Century. Thank you, Kenesha. Thank you so much for joining us. Very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So our big question today is about what are the lessons of, of history, even history going back almost 100 years ago or more um, in this period of the Great Migration for contemporary politics? How does that illustrate the intersection between race and geography and the movement and migration of people and political power? Um, we're going to touch on, on all sorts of different questions. We're even hoping to get to some veep stakes, so bring it right to the present. But I, I want to start, before we really delve into these issues and talk about how the, the past informs the present, I want to start with a little bit of background information about the Great Migration and its political impact. So, Kanisha, you want to give us a little overview of that? Sure. The Great Migration is the movement of about six and a half million Black people from the South to other places in the nation. And so they moved North and to a later extent West in two waves. The first wave goes up until about uh, the First World War, or they leave after the First World War. And then the second wave picks up again after the Second World War. And they go to large cities in the North, but they also go to some smaller and medium-sized cities too. We think that they move in streams and so they move as they have access to transportation on train lines and things like that. And a part of the reason that they're moving is that they want to have a better life for themselves. They want to have jobs with wages that can sustain them different from some of the opportunities for work that they have in the South. And they wanna be full citizens in ways that they don't really have the ability to be so in the South because they face segregation and other kinds of Jim Crow things, violence in some instances. And they believe that if they go to the North, not only will they have the ability to work, but they'll have the ability to be citizens in the truest sense of the word. In addition to that, some of them are talking about their excitement around voting. And so that's another thing that's on their mind is they're moving up to the North. Yeah, so that's really fascinating. And I think, you know, one of the things that makes this book really um really interesting is because it it really it highlights and foregrounds that story of 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 black citizens seeking that full political citizenship in the in the north um and it also really goes into how you know how those citizens became politically politically engaged once they got there and how they became part of the political fabric very quickly but in very but in different ways in each of the each of the cities that you write about in the book in Detroit, New York, and Chicago. And Lee, I know you have some, some questions about, um, about that political impact. Yeah. So, I, you know, what, one of the things that, that I, you know, I thought this was a, a, a great read and, you know, a lot of really fascinating stories, but in terms of a, a sort of key theoretical contribution and a lens for thinking about politics, 
uh, you've got this idea of the, the black balance of power, uh, which if, if I understand it correctly, basically the, the argument is that politics became responsive to civil rights at a particular moment in the mid 20th century because of the migration blacks became a key pivotal electoral constituency in a number of key states. Uh, and you know, it's sort of, a, I think it's a pretty nuanced theory, which involves the spatial distribution of black voters and their, that interaction with the rules for electoral office and also the degree of party cohesion. There's a lot going on there. So I wonder if you could kind of break it down uh, for our listeners and really explain that theory. And I think it's quite applicable today, too. So I wonder if you could kind of speculate on that as well. Yeah, I want to start with uh, talking about kind of the, the broader theories that I was thinking about as I came to the work. And so I went to Syracuse. I was working with Jeff Stonecash, who writes about party change and eventually working with Christy Anderson, who advised my dissertation. This book is a cousin of the dissertation. And so I was thinking about party change and kind of curious about why Black voters were Democrats. Um, I, I went into this thinking that Black people had some conservative ideas about certain things. And so I wonder why Republicans wouldn't uh, be a viable option for them. So I want to stop here and say to anybody listening who's not, who's new to studying politics, this is a different Republican Party than Donald Trump's Republican Party that I'm wondering about. Um, and so it's, it's still kind of a problem for Black people, but not a problem in the same way that folks might think about it today. But in doing that, I was curious about Black folks moving into the party. And Christie's book is about immigrants moving into the Democratic Party. And so as I was doing this reading about how Black folks become part of the Democratic Party, I came into contact with or read a book called The Balance of Power by Henry Lee Moon. And Henry Lee Moon works at the NAACP and is basically writing this story, this book about how Black folks should be an important consideration in the presidential election in the 1940s. And he's basically arguing that Black folks have moved to these electorally important places. And because they move to these important places, we should be thoughtful about them. And so Black folks move in to the North, as I mentioned, but they move to some of the most populous states in the North. Not only do they go to some of the most populous states with the largest electoral count delegations, they go to the biggest cities most often in those places. And so if you want to win Illinois, you need to win Chicago. If you want to win Michigan, you need to win Detroit. And if you want to win Michigan or Illinois, and you need to get Chicago or Detroit, then you have to be thoughtful about Black people because there are lots of them there. And so he makes this claim, which I find very fascinating. And I find it fascinating too, because in the reading, white politicians are talking about Black people as the balance of power as well. And so as I was doing this work to try to figure out how Black folks come into the party, how politicians respond to them as they come into the party, I had the balance of power in my mind because that was the language that they were using to talk about Black people. And so in short, it's basically this idea that if the white population is split and Black people vote together as a block, then it is possible that they can influence the outcomes of elections. And so it will behoove politicians who might be dealing with a split white vote 
to court black voters as a way to ensure that they are going to win the election. And so in the book, a little different from the dissertation, I end up talking about white politicians' beliefs about black voters as the balance of power because I wanted to figure out, well, first, were they actually the balance of power? And then was that some of the reason why politicians changed their behavior? We know it's some of the reason why they changed their behavior because they say it's the reason why they changed their behavior. But it actually turned out that in some instances, black folks were not the balance of power. And so white politicians believed that they were, but they were actually not in some instances, the balance of power. And so that was kind of one of the most interesting things I found along the way of doing the research. Uh, but I think even with the language in the text or in the book about Black folks not being the balance of power in some instances, it's probably a better idea to think about them as really, really important coalition partners and to think about their numbers, meaning that even if they are not the balance of power, they are so big as a block, the Black vote is so big as the block that it is not a coalition that you can win without. And so I think even though the politicians are using this language that suggests that Black voters are a block that swings from one candidate to the next, it's probably a better idea to think of them as a coalition among many coalitions and a, a, a block of votes that you absolutely do need if you want to be comfortable in your win, but maybe not a balance of power in the straightforward way that they were describing it or a straightforward way that reflects the language they were using. In terms of current politics, I think that it will behoove the Democratic Party to think about Black voters as a balance of power or as an important coalition group. And I think that they uh, don't always do that. I think that they assume that Black folks are going to turn out and they don't have to like work for that turnout. But if this book is instructive in any ways, I think it's instructive in the sense that you actually have to do things that Black people want you to do. You have to speak to their interest in order for them to turn out. They are sophisticated voters, have been the whole time they were participating in politics. If you don't do things that they see and, and know as happening to get their votes to speak directly to them, they might not turn out for you. I want to push a little bit on, on that point because I think it's really important. Um, and I think there, there's, I mean, the, the story in the in the 40s and the 50s and even into the, the mid 60s is that a, a lot of black voters, in fact, voted Republican for a long time then, but, but they were a, a constituency that was up for grabs between the two parties. Uh, and 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 that that's that that's a, a particular kind of balance of power. And then I think today it's balance of power as you know blacks might just not vote and sit out the election. Right? I mean they're not at this point. There's not too many black voters who are about to vote for Donald Trump or Republicans for president. But I think the uh, one argument why Hillary lost in 2016 is because a lot of black voters just looked at her and said, "I'm not." I'm not voting for her. What's, you know, and uh, so those are two two different ways, I think, in which to conceive of the balance of power. And I mean, it does does seem like it's, you know, in some ways, I mean, I look at the electoral system and think, well, shouldn't shouldn't all groups have power regardless of whether they happen to be situated in between the two parties at a, at a particular moment? So I, how do you how do you think about those two different balances of 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 power or or am i am i am i am i going too far to to kind of separate them 
I'm so glad you asked that that way because I, I recognize in my telling of it, I'm kind of assuming some knowledge. So I think you are making a very important point, which is that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party of really before 1965 is not separate in the way that we think about them now. And so they take positions on issues, but the positions are not so polarized uh, that it's really like swinging from backwards to forward. And so even uh, in the 1940s and 50s, as you mentioned, we see the Republican Party kind of trying to be decent or good on race issues in some instances. And so I think that's a really important point to make. And I think that in the book, like in the local sense and in the national sense, politicians are thinking about the balance of power, both in terms of, okay, well, what positions are we going to take to get a leg up? But I think the local part is instructed too, because politicians are thinking about primary elections. And so if we think about New York, if we think about Chicago, the question is not necessarily, depending on where you are in the period of interest, are you going to vote for a Democrat or are you going to vote for a Republican and how do we move between the two? But how do we even exist within the Democratic Party? Like if you want to be the mayor of Chicago, you are going to run against a Democrat who may be a moderate. So a moderate and a liberal might run against each other and then they have to decide how they organize themselves and court black voters accordingly. And so, yes, the parties are not very separate from each other. Sometimes they take positions that are maybe different from what we might expect them to do now. And so I think the balance of power is important as a way of thinking about uh, how they position themselves. I think that's probably a better story at the national level as we watch the party sort themselves out than it is at the local level, in the book at least, because in the book, the Democratic Party is in control of New York almost the whole time, except for when a third party is in control. In Chicago, for a good chunk of time they are, and then Detroit doesn't have parties in this story. But I think that's a really important thing for um, the, the first part of what you're talking about. In terms of the second part, in terms of staying home, one of the things I was so heartened by in the book was that it was the case that sometimes the party establishment would tell Black people who to vote for. I'm thinking about Chicago here. And they have a mayor, Big Bill Thompson, who's a Republican in this story. Um, and the Republicans at this time is early in the period. I think it's like 1915. He's one of the first mayors I studied. The Republican Party is saying to Black voters, hey, we're your party. We love you. You know we love you. Vote for us. And so the Democrats take a different kind of position, which is not so friendly. And Big Bill Thompson is a Republican mayor. He runs for office. Eventually, he's unable to run. And he has demonstrated that he's a friend of Black people. And in demonstrating this, has uh, built some rapport with Black voters. And so the Republican Party, again, the party with whom they are most affiliated with, say to Black voters, hey, Big Bill Thompson's not running. This is our guy. Vote for this person. And Big Bill Thompson says, listen, I know you all are Republicans, but this Democrat will probably be better suited for you. Vote for the Democrat instead. And so in this instance, we see Black people actually buck the party, say, I know that I'm a Republican, but this person who I trust tells me that the Republican Party does not have my interest, therefore I'm about to vote for the Democrats. Um, and I brought that up again to suggest that Black voters are really sophisticated voters. And I don't think that we always talk about them in that way. I think that sometimes the story about Black voters is that they are Democrats and they just show up, or they're super Democrats and they just show up, you don't have to do anything about it. And so I think in the case of Hillary Clinton, 
people assume that that black folks will vote for her or show up for her in the same ways that they showed up for Barack Obama. And I don't know why, you know, the models would suggest that people, black people would show up for Hillary Clinton in the way they would show up for Barack Obama, if for no other reason that Barack Obama is a black man. He's the first black man who has the democratic nomination for president. And so even if you don't really like Barack Obama in that story, you're gonna show up for him and he might get some grace that other candidates might not get. And it seemed like the Democratic Party assumed that that goodwill was attached to the party and not to the person, when in fact that goodwill was attached to the person and not the party. And so I think it's important as we think about the 2020 election that again, the Democrats don't get confused about what's happening. If you don't have a person to whom people can be attached, to whom they have some allegiance, then you actually have to do the work of giving them stuff. You actually have to say, I'm going to give you this thing, that policy thing, or, or something else like that, if you expect them to turn out. They don't just turn out without uh, getting their, their needs met. And I don't think that anybody should be upset with them because that's how politics works. Everybody else says, this is what I want. Give me this thing I want. And in return, I will give you my vote. And I think that Black voters are still as sophisticated. They say, either you speak to me directly or I don't participate with you. Yeah, that's really, that's really fascinating. And I find the linkages between the periods that you write about, which ends around the 60s and 70s and, and what's going on now really, um, really fascinating. So I actually wanna pivot in and talk about um, some of, like you said, pol the policies and, and issues that came up during this period and how that can inform what we think about what's going on right now. I mean, I was really, struck as I was reading your book about the ways um, in which uh, policing problems with law enforcement, law and order appeals, all of this stuff, um, talking various ways of talking about crime, right? People talking about their experiences. So some of the, some of the black politicians and political actors talking about their experiences um, with crime, but then also white politicians using crime in a, in a symbolic way. Um, and you write in the conclusion that you, you said, I think you, the word you use is disheartened, um, disheartened that some of the same issues that people were talking about and that, that Black politicians were, um, were pushing for in, the, in this earlier period, 100 years ago, are still the same ones that we're talking about now. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about some of these, uh, some of the policy issues and then and now? Yeah, and I'm glad you like highlighted that language about being disheartened because I was, I was very, I mean, I mean, I'm black, so I know kind of this stuff from my day-to-day -day interactions in the world, but I think it's another thing to see it outside myself and to see it as written by people in the past you know, different from hearing it. And, and much of the work is based on archival or um, analysis of newspapers, black newspapers and white newspapers over the entire period of interest. And so it was just sad to see, you know, what black folks were working on, what the campaign issues were and to know that they were the same things. And so, as you mentioned, policing was one of the things they are worried about housing. I was real sad to see they were worried about gender pay stuff. Um, I, I think that sometimes we talk about these things as though they are like new in some ways, like, oh my God, I can't believe this happened. This this is not who we are, is the language we use often. America, this is not America, this is not who we are, but it kind of is. 
it's exactly who we are. We're doing this stuff over and over again. In the recent past, I returned to the book to think about and to look for the stuff on policing and it's there from the first story. It's there from 1915. As soon as Black people show up in the North, they start having problems with policing. They ha start having problems navigating spaces and being safe in those spaces. And they, in their politics, are asking politicians, hey, if you want my support, please guarantee that police will stop being brutal in my communities, that they will stop killing us. Please ensure that some of us can be on the police force. Please ensure that uh, people who we know don't have our best interests can be removed from their positions. And in some instances, the politicians say, yeah, sure, okay, we can do that for you. And they do it. In some instances, they say, yeah, sure, we can do that for you. And then they don't. And in some instances, they say no. Or not only do they say, no, we won't do that for you. They use the fact that they won't help Black people be safe in communities as a way to demonstrate their law and order chops and say, hey, these Black people said that they were upset about the police chief. Not only am I not going to change the police chief, I'm going to make things worse. And don't you love that I'm making things worse? If you love that I'm making things wor worse for Black people, vote for me, which I think was just, you know, sad. Another thing that I saw uh, in the work that I thought was really interesting was a campaign in Detroit that, that looked like fake news. And so one of the mayors who's running in Detroit is running and desegregating communities is not on the ballot, but it's a thing that they're thinking about. And so the labor unions in Detroit are trying to tell working class white people, hey, it'd probably be a good idea if you all worked in coalition with black people because you have similar interests. And the business lobby in Detroit is saying to them, oh, no, you don't have similar interests with Black people. You are a white person and you are responsible to protect whiteness. This economic stuff is not stuff that you should be worried about. And so the mayoral candidate prints up these signs about desegregating a white neighborhood and puts these signs in the white neighborhood as a way to scare the people in that white neighborhood about the likelihood that Black folks are going to come. And essentially, it's like, hey, if you are very afraid about Black people moving into your neighborhood, you probably don't want to vote for the liberal guy. You probably want to vote for me instead. And so I, I just thought the policing thing was very interesting as a thing that we are thinking and talking about now that was there in the past. Another thing that I think was important and that I think I want to write about in the near future it was housing. It was difficult for Black folks to establish space, to find housing, to be able to live in these cities when they first got to the cities. And I think the, the housing question is a bit different today as we think about gentrification and displacement, but that's another thing that seemed eerily similar to the current moment. So I want to flip it back over to um, to Lee to talk about um, some electoral institutions where we jump into the contemporary Democratic Party. But I, I do want to say, I, um, yeah, I was really 
I was struck by some of those those parallels reading as well, and I really think this is an important point that you underscore is that there's there is a pervasive kind of discourse in politics about this isn't this isn't who we are or that this Trump moment is so unprecedented and there's never I mean I have literally seen and I spend too much time on Twitter which is not going to be news to um, probably um, anyone on this podcast or anyone listening to it but people sort of saying that we've never had a president be this bumps it up to national politics but you know we've never had a president embrace these racist issues or whatever I'm like eh, I'm not sure <laughs> that that's right um, you know there's some there is something distinct about the current moment compared to the last 30 years, obviously, but that in order to, I think, really move forward on these issues, we need to really face up to how deeply some of these same questions going back to, to policing and uh, residential segregation that you, that you highlight, um, that these are, these are pretty deeply ingrained in our history. I have to say, when you're talking about like the signs about integrating a white neighborhood put up by the mayoral candidate, like I would not, I would not be surprised if something along those lines happened, you know, here where I live in Milwaukee now, like this is like local politics, which is, you know, as in the cities you write about is like, is all Democrats, but it's like this whole variety of different Democrats, some of whom um, really play on these white conservative notions and these notions of, as the phrase you use, they're protecting, protecting whiteness. I think, I feel like if, like everybody who studies American politics should have, that phrase should be part of their, their research. Um, because it's, it's part of so many aspects of American politics. And I think, you know, a lot of us who were trained in, um, in the kind of mid-century conventional American politics literature aren't, you know, don't have the language necessarily always to talk about that. People were trained in, in a literature that wasn't, where race wasn't central. Okay, that's my, that's the end of my rant, at least that rant. No, I think that's, I think that's really important. I'm so glad you said that out loud, because I think that I, I too am trained in that, right? Like I went to a school, I studied American politics, I read the canon just like everybody else. I just happened to be Black. And so when I'm reading Christie's book about people moving into the Democratic Party, I have a different interaction with America. And so I can say, oh, you know, immigrants weren't the only people who showed up in Chicago. I know some other folks who show up in Chicago. Black people showed up in Chicago in really large numbers. And she, she talks like super briefly about them. But I was just astonished. I really, the whole time I was writing the dissertation and kind of low-key the whole time I was writing the book was worried that I was going to stumble upon this book. Like clearly somebody must have written about the great migration and politics. I cannot be the first person to do that. But as far as I know, it's just me. And I think that's a function of like just blackness. And that's why it's so important to have different people around to help you understand what's happening. I think in America, we don't talk about race and white people don't have to think about being white very often. And because they don't have to think about being white, they just write from a place of, you know, this is what's happening. And in much of the political science literature, they have these footnotes about, well, you know, black people are weird. So we just gonna put them over here and not do that thing. And so I think you're right. If it was the case that we had people like revising their understandings or thinking twice about what it means to be white, 
in terms of the political science literature, it would just be so much more rich. There would be so much more context and we could be clearer, I think, about why some people are doing what they're doing. It doesn't seem like it's, you know, surprising or new or unclear because the, the central organizing theme is there. It's been there the whole time. We just haven't called it out. Wow. Um, so I, I want to move the conversation and pick up back on something that you said earlier, uh, you know, about, you know, one, that it wasn't so long ago when it was a reasonable question to ask why all so many black voters were Democrats when there actually are a lot of black voters who are somewhat culturally conservative and might actually have a, a, a fit in the Republican Party. And, you know, I can even remember wasn't doesn't seem like like that long ago, though in some ways it feels like ancient history, the Bush 2004 campaign, which really made a, a very concerted effort to go after uh, black churches and uh, some of the more con culturally conservative blacks, uh, even farther back. I mean, even even Law and Order Nixon had a had a whole vision of black capitalism and really investing in in uh, the black business owners. Uh, and you know the Republican Party has now basically abandoned that. Uh, but I, I want to, you know, so I think part of that probably has to do with uh, the way that the, the, co the Republican coalition has just shifted to be much more rural and just, just incredibly conservative. Uh, and the Democratic Party coalition has shifted as well. So I, I want to put that on the table. The other thing that I, I want to get you to weigh in, and this is something that I've thought a lot about uh, with our electoral rules and how we think about representation. Um, and one of, one of the books that, that has really influenced my thinking on this topic is Lonnie Guineer's uh, Tyranny of the Majority, which I guess is a collection of a bunch of her law review essays in which she kind of wrestles with, I think, something similar to, to what you wrestle with, with the, the balance of power is that, you know, she talks about the, the majority minority districts as one solution and then notes that, well, what happens is then you have a, a, basically a, a segregation of the black vote into a bunch of districts where, you know, very lopsided and they you know, basically have incumbents for life, no competition, except maybe occasionally in the primary. So there's a, a lack of accountability and you create a situation where the as you draw more of those majority minority districts where districts where you used to have moderate Democrats uh, or maybe even some moderate Republicans who had some black voters in their constituency and actually tried to be responsive to them because they might have held the balance of power uh, suddenly are in much whiter districts now. And just these are not my constituents, which the which actually connects to the previous uh, point I was trying to make about the Republican Party just becoming a much whiter party with fewer representatives who even are, are trying to appeal to black voters because they're not their constituents. So I guess, the, I mean, obviously, the, the descriptive representation is incredibly important, uh, but just curious about how you how you see the kind of trade-off between descriptive representation, even if it comes at the cost of a black balance of power and how it shifts the party coalitions or, or are those even the right questions uh, to be, to be thinking about? I have a bias here. 
So let me just give you a bit of context about myself. I went to Florida a and University. It's in Tallahassee, Florida. And so I show up at FAMU in 2001. I'm kind of thinking about politics in general. Uh, I don't know how I get curious about it. Somewhere in state and local government class, it becomes interesting to me. And so I'm in Tallahassee and I'm in student government. I'm doing that thing. And um, Jeb Bush is the governor. And we really just want Jeb Bush, we family students want Jeb Bush to be like a different person than he is. And we have affirmative action stuff going on. Like there's so much politics happening. And then one of us decides that he's going to run for city commission. That person's name is Andrew Gillum. And so Andrew Gillum's going to run for city commission. And everybody's like, yo, this is absolutely crazy. What are you talking about? You are a kid. This is Tallahassee. They're not, I mean, there are Black people. There are not that many Black people. He's running against a person who has like deep family roots in the city, who has a bunch of money. And is when he runs the first time, literally just Andrew and some kids at FAM. And he wins a seat on the city commission. And he's like 23 years old or something crazy. And so... I think that really was an important moment for me as a citizen and really even as a political scientist because it just opened my eyes to like what the democracy could do. And so in some ways I'm still kind of skeptical like as a default, but I also have this very early political experience where a kid decides that he wants to change his community and then like is successful in doing it and so I told that whole story to say I think that we black people would be better served if it was the case that we had districts that were not 80 and 90 percent black I think that having these districts in the name of descriptive representation might have been important at some point. And so in 1992 or four, and we get all these people coming into the Congress, I think that's great, right? Like, yes, let's do that. But in 2020, I don't think it serves us. And I don't, I don't think that we should hold on to it because it worked in the past. I think that somewhere along the line, uh, this idea that we had to pack Black districts so full of black people that we had these folks who were in office for life um, stop being the best way to be. We know we only need about 30% of black folks in a place. And that's like maybe 25 to 30% in a black of black folks in a place in order for a black person to have a viable chance. And I would like to think even for all the things I've said about America just kind of being what it is that in some ways, I hope in the future, we're moving to a place where we will have populations of people who are willing to take chances on Black populations, populations of white people who are willing to take chances on Black, black politicians and other people or people from other races or people who identify themselves differently who are willing to take chances on Black people that make it such that we don't need these hyper-Black districts. And I think that I share you know, your sentiment that if we have these hyper-Black districts, then we end up with districts that are not hyper-Black. And if they are not hyper-Black, what does that mean? Like, what does that turn into? And so I'm thinking about a district in Florida where a member of Congress has this very, a member, a Democratic member of Congress, a Black Democratic member of Congress works together with her Republican colleagues 
in order to ensure that her district remains very Black. But the result is that she gets this super liberal, super Black district, but the, all the districts around it are super white and super conservative, which ends up hurting us in the long run. And so, yes, we get to see her as a Black person in Congress, and that's great, and we're proud of her, like, thanks. But I don't know that the trade-off for having her there is worth having a counterpart there with her who's working against our interests and certainly not having multiple ones who are in the various districts around her going to Congress with her. Like the, the, the one picture of her to me is not enough to account for the four or five people who had to go to Congress with her in order for that deal to get done. And so the short of it is that absolutely, I think descriptive representation matters. I think that Black folks have different experiences and that those different experiences shape the way we exist in the world. Like I mentioned, I show up reading about party change. I show up reading uh, issue evolution and I'm thinking about it differently than other folks might think about it because in some ways I'm looking for myself, right? Like in Carmine's and Stimson, I'm like, okay, and then what did the Black people do? And then they never tell that story, right? Like it's a story about race, but no Black people are doing anything in the story which is why my book has stories about Black elected officials. And so, yes, I want Black folks elected to public office because I think and I hope that when they show up, they are going to be thinking about the world and thinking about their experiences in ways that will lend some positive benefit for me. But I want balance too. I want it to be the case that they show up, that they do that work, um, but that we have governing bodies that look like America. And we know that the governing bodies don't look like America. And I'm thinking about Florida again, because that's where I'm from. We know that the state legislature of Florida does not look like Florida because Florida like keeps barely electing Republicans. They keep almost electing Democrats. They did elect Barack Obama. And so how is it the case that we have these folks voting for Democrats in these large numbers, but we've got this hyper-Republican legislature. I don't think that the balance is right. I think that it's possible to have descriptive representation and the substantive representation. And I think we got to do a better job of balancing out these districts so that we are not forced to choose between these two in ways that like we shouldn't have to be forced anymore. Yeah, this is, I mean, these are really fascinating questions. These are like the questions that I think about when I read work like yours is exactly as like the linkage between descriptive and, and substantive representation for different, particularly for, you know, different groups that have been um, out of power. So I want to pivot a little bit to talking about contemporary democratic politics, because this is, you know, clearly like reading your book and we have this shared interest in um, politics within parties and like, I really want to get Kanisha's um, take on on the 2020 nomination so if, if in case people have forgotten um it's it's june 2020 earlier this year we had a, a presidential primary that was a thing that happened it seems like about seventy thousand years ago but it's true and you know i got um a couple of a couple of thoughts and questions about that in terms of the role that that black voters played um, the kinds of issues that came out in the in the primary, um, descriptive representation, geography. So, you know, do you want to give us a kind of general take, Kanisha, about your you know your view about 
what happened in 2020 and then I'll ask a couple more specific questions and I, I might let Lee talk, I'll, I'll probably let Lee talk, um, maybe. Um, I the whole time have been like, oh my God, this is gonna be so fun for somebody in, I don't know, 2050 or whenever, sometime in the future, some person's gonna come and write about this. It's gonna be very interesting for that person. It's interesting for me to watch it and to, I think, I don't know how I ended up like this, but I think about politics probably in 50 year chunks. And so I'm just very enthused for whoever comes back to watch this and write about it later. But I have been, it does seem like it was so long ago that we had kind of this coalescing around Joe Biden. And I just have so many feelings about it. I think one of the feelings about it is this feeling about the space between substantive and descriptive representation. I think that we are still so early in uh, like seeing Black people in the highest offices in American government that like everything that I just said about descriptive representation doesn't apply, I think, in the same way at the national level. I think that, or I should be clearer, doesn't apply in the same way when we think about the president and vice president of the United States. And so I think it's probably true now and in the primary election that folks were kind of thoughtful about descriptive representation in ways that they might not be thoughtful about it for their member of Congress or for their state legislatures, because we don't have folks getting elected. In, in some places, we do have folks getting elected on par with Black representation in the population, but in some, in many instances, we don't. And so I think that the, the descriptive thing is something that folks consider, even if it's not most important. And I think that if you think about a Kamala Harris, you can see that Black folks are like, mm, you're a Black. Yes, I hear you saying that you are Black, but I also have questions about your role and your feelings about law enforcement, which obviously kind of evolve. I think we can get to that in a minute, but in the in the beginning of this race, I think it was just interesting to see how folks balanced this descriptive thing with the substantive thing. I think that South Carolina as Joe Biden's advertised firewall was very interesting and that it actually turned out to be a firewall was stunning to me. Uh, I think that Jim Clyburn ought to be not a footnote, like he needs to be in the paragraphs when we write about this thing because I don't know that Joe Biden gets that firewall without him. And so I said all that to say, I'm really interested to see how Joe Biden runs as a general election candidate, given what I think is like him owing his nomination to Black people. I think that this, with, without that firewall that he had advertised and without Black folks showing up in South Carolina and other Southern states, in the great force that they did, it would have been a much longer, much messier primary, but we did not experience the primary in that way. And I, I think it's important to remember why we didn't experience it that way, that Black folks came out for him in large numbers and that the moderate Democrats couldn't imagine a path forward if it was going to be the case that they needed to compete with that kind of showing throughout the South. Yeah, I think you're certainly right about Jim Clyburn. At the time, I felt like the, the maybe the, the party decides needs to just become Jim Clyburn decides. 
because I think he really did uh, decide. Um, you know, but but one of the other things about the primary that struck me is that there seemed to be at least from my reading of of the the polling that there seemed to be a real big divide between or different generations of black voters that it seemed like there were older black voters who who really supported Joe Biden, but younger black voters who didn't so much. And, you know, I think there's a tendency to, to think about black voters as a as just this, you know, homogenous block, but that there's actually tremendous diversity among black voters, particularly a, a generational, at least that seemed to come through. So I wonder if you could kind of speak about that and, and also where where black voters are, are are moving over the next several years and you know both 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 politically and and geographically because there seems like there is now a, a migration back to the south and out of urban cores and into suburbia among black voters and how does that change our politics yes i so yes all of that's so interesting to me okay so black voters are not a monolith, which is, I think, a sentence everybody knows by now. I think not only do we need to think about Black voters in terms of like this young versus old divide, I think there's also some class stuff happening too. And so I want to start with young voters, young Black voters, I think are probably like young voters in general in the sense that they are free in ways that older folks are not free. And so in, in conversations with older Black people who were supporting Joe Biden, I think that they were telling stories about pragmatism, which was the same story they told about Barack Obama. If you remember 2007, the Congressional Black Caucus, Black people are not like publicly hype about Barack Obama because they just don't think it can happen. And so I think in the same way, if older Black voters really believed that we could have a Black president again so soon, that they might have thought differently about a Kamala Harris, a Cory Booker, a Deval Patrick. But I think that they found this argument from Joe Biden that he was the one who could do it, that he was the only one who would really like get the party's nomination and support persuasive. And so again, I think they're being sophisticated in their approach to politics. I think that they might, like if you dig a, a bit deeper, share some of his policy ideas, but I think that the first thing was, all right, well, how do we just make sure that Donald Trump doesn't get reelected? And the answer for many of them was Joe Biden when we're thinking about older voters, whereas young people are like, nah, I'm, I'm willing to take a chance. I'm not so conservative. I'm not so risk averse here. Let's see what the world has to offer. I think with regard to class, one of the things that I think Black folks, Black women in particular, talk about in private, but won't talk about in public so much is that like lots of people I know liked Elizabeth Warren, like a lot. And that was their person. And I think that at some points in the campaign, there were some of us who thought like, I'm not about to be campaigning for talking about Elizabeth Warren as my candidate while a black woman is in the race. There's just something about that that seems to violate, uh, you know, what we learn about how we engage each other in a public space. And so that was one thing. But again, in this instance, we have folks saying, I know that Joe Biden is the kind of technically correct choice, maybe the heir apparent, but Elizabeth Warren is speaking my language. 
like she's talking directly to me. She, she literally said black maternity mortality rates, or she literally talked about uh, black women in the movement when she visited the Atlanta uh, University Center or like other things that she was doing that spoke directly to black folks. And so I think we need to think about this age divide. And I think there's probably also a class class gender divide when we think about black folks in the 2020 primary election for Democrats too. In terms of politics and migration today, I have a lot of work to do. I think um, I, I haven't figured out how I'm gonna organize it yet, but I'm really curious about return migration, which is what we call that movement of black folks out of the North into the South. And so the great migration we think ends in 1970, but it, as it ends, the return migration begins and many of the people who are in the North, in these large urban centers, move to the South. They start going to Atlanta, Charlotte, Houston, and, and making a life in those places, which I think has great ability to change the politics in those places. And I think we're seeing like the first glimmers of that. Uh, Stacey Abrams, I think, exists because demographics are changing in Georgia. And there's a bigger story about like economic changes in the state and how the state is positioning itself to get companies to come and that changes the demographics. But I think a big part of it that I don't think should get lost just because of you know how I exist in the world is this story of black migration back to the south and then we also have this kind of other thing that's happening in this urban suburban divide and so as gentrification means that cities become in like not available to black people in the same ways that they can't afford to live there this pushes them out to entering suburbs. And so I have questions about what that means for their political participation in these suburbs. Some of the writing so far has been about, all right, well, gentrification happens. Will DC remain the chocolate city? Is the, is the party, is the Democratic Party going to continue to be able to hang on here? Is it going to be more liberal, more moderate? Like the folks are asking those questions. But I think some of the more interesting questions or the questions I have are about what happens to displaced people and are they going into suburban environments that will be responsive to their needs as residents that will be responsive to their attempts to participate in politics as citizens or will like one of the stories in the book or some of the stories in the book are are stories about black people showing up in the north and political parties working to disenfranchise them working to make sure that they don't participate. And so I'm wondering whether the Black folks who are moving into these entering suburbs might face that same kind of engagement from politicians and political parties about like, hey, we see that you showed up and we know that you can technically vote, but like, don't come and participate. Whether they will erect some barriers to participation for folks who are leaving the cities. It's kind of the next, those are the next two sets of things that I'm thinking about. Those sound really fascinating, and I'm definitely looking forward to seeing that. And and clearly, this these questions about voter suppression are now starting to touch all different aspects of American politics. So as we as we're coming up on the end of our time, I want to get to I think a question that's on a lot of people's minds as we think about presidential and party politics um, this summer, which is the the Veep stakes. So you know, Joe Biden in March he said his running mate will be a woman. Um, immediately there, there became, you know, conversations about whether that would be a woman of color and specifically a, a Black woman. 
recently Amy Klobuchar said she was taking herself out of contention because it should be a woman of color and that that there was some language about healing the nation um, through this VP pick. That's a lot of that's a lot of work for that VP pick to do. I was wondering what your what your take is on the this coming vice presidential decision from presumptive nominee Joe Biden. The short answer is that I think Joe Biden should pick a black woman to be his running mate. I think that that's the short answer. The longer answer is I am worried that Democrats will give a black VP and then be like, you got your black VP, right? Like no other things, no other progress for you. And so I don't have a crystal ball, but if I did and I, I, I could tell, you know, what the things are that will follow from a black VP, then I, you know, would be able to have a more, more coherent take for you. But I worry that somewhere it's gonna get messy. Like it's just this idea that we gave you a black VP is going to be enough. And if we're gonna have a politics at work, if we're gonna move in a different direction from what Donald Trump did and kind of move into a bright future, I think that we have work to do other than just giving a person a seat. So that's kind of the longer thing. On the issue of like, clearly we need a black woman. Everything I got, taught about politics, everything I learned about it, like at home when I was growing up and in the books is that politics is give and take, that politicians respond to people who treat them well, who give them what they need in this instance, votes. And so we talked, you know, a few minutes ago about Joe Biden having Jim Clyburn decide and black folks being like, okay, well, Jim, we trust you. If Joe Biden's your guy, let's do it. And so if it is the case that they change the trajectory of this race or they set into motion things that change the trajectory of this race, Black voters, this is, then I think the Democratic Party would be remiss not to choose a Black woman, especially because there are qualified Black women in the pool. We could have a separate conversation about what it means to be qualified these days, given that Donald Trump was a reality TV star before he was the president. But we got qualified Black women in the pool I, I just can't come up with a reason why not to choose one. The other thing that we talked about, you know, a few minutes ago that I think is instructive here is turnout. In 2016, the Democratic Party assumed that Black voters would turn out without being campaigned to and without having a person on the ticket who would excite them. And so I hope that the Democratic Party doesn't make this same mistake. And so not making the same mistake, I think, looks like choosing a Black VP for Joe Biden. Or if for some reason there is no Black VP, that platform has to have like a whole Black people section. And it has to say, this is what we are going to do for Black America. This is what we are going to do to fix the problems. And then they got to convince people that they are actually going to do those things. But I think the better road for Joe Biden is to choose a Black VP. Yeah, I think that the I think this point you raise about politics being a give and take and that there are this there is this coalitional and even transactional element to politics is is really important because I think that that's something that some of the some of the reform discourse that we often engage with on this podcast sometimes misses and you know I, I think is sometimes lacking in in a political conversation where people are seeking ideological purity like we hear this thing about purity tests a lot it's usually not meant as a compliment um 
And that's, I, I think that's just kind of a dead end way of thinking about politics. It's okay for politics to be about people participating because they want to have some power and they want to, to enact policies that will be beneficial for them and their communities. And that's, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's like a really simple point, but a, but a critical one. Um, and also one that engages, I think, the way that your work looks at both the local and national context. So I want to give you and Kanisha and, and Lee also um, a second to have a last word before we wrap things up. Anyone have any any last words? I mean, I, I really appreciate the book and, and the, the, the lens that you've brought on to, to thinking about politics and, and political power. And I think, you know, given the, the, the strangeness of the American system, it's really important to think about where groups can have leverage with, within this system. And, you know, maybe, I mean, the thing that I, I think about a lot is why a group needs to, to just be in this, in, in one particular pivotal position in order to have power. I mean, that seems like a, a broader pathology of our political system, but that's that's a, a a topic for my book, which is now available as an audiobook, Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I know I'm supposed to be the one answering questions, but I, I was, <laughs> when you think about the balance of power thing, I'm thinking about your book, Lee, and like, okay, well, if we had ourselves organized differently, then, you know, all the things that follow, not all, but many of the things that follow from what we expect uh, about how Black voters are organized and some other things like might look different than what we see currently. Yeah, well, I agree. This is a great note, I think, for us to to wrap up on is this the importance is linkage here, um, not just between politics and, and history and what's going on now, but also the the linkages we see between institutional contexts and how the, how those structure power and how that helps different groups attain power that they haven't had before or it, you know uh, can on the contrary can get in their way um, and be an obstacle to a more equitable distribution of power throughout different groups in society and thus you know a fuller democracy. But I think that's a really excellent note and I you know I highly recommend that our listeners check out. Kenesha Grant's book, The Great Migration and the Democratic Party. And also, this is a good note to mention that Lee's book is now available on audiobook. So check out Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, Lee Drutman. That should keep everybody out of trouble. And I have not finished drafting my book, so you're off the hook there. But I really want to thank you, Kenesha Grant of Howard University, for joining us today and having this fascinating conversation. Thank you for having me. It was fun to be with you. Thanks, all. This has been Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.